Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a senior clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Before we get into the interview with Dr. Diana de Carvalho, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from a person with the nickname RB Love Gigi, who says, by far one of the most valuable content resources for new and old chiropractors alike. Reliably poignant content presented in an easy to digest manner. Well, thanks, RB Love Gigi, for your review. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. DeCavallo. Dr. Diana DeCavallo is an assistant professor at Memorial University of Newfoundland in the discipline of medicine, faculty of medicine. She holds the Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation professorship in spine biomechanics and is cross-appointed to the School of Human Kinetics and Recreation. After completing a BS in human kinetics at the University of Guelph, she attended the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, graduating with a class of 2006. Concurrent to part-time clinical practice, Dr. DeCavallo has completed a certificate in university teaching, along with her master's and PhD in kinesiology at the University of Waterloo. She has extensive experience with industry-partnered research involving both automotive and ergonomic office seating. Directly related to decreased productivity, decreased quality of life, and high health care costs, low back pain might be the first of many negative health outcomes experienced by sedentary workers. Dr. De Cavallo's research program focuses on spine mechanics, especially in response to sustained flexion, in order to better define and direct early diagnosis, prevention, and intervention strategies for low back pain. In addition to numerous peer-reviewed conference presentations, both at the national and international level, Dr. De Cavallo has published articles in such journals as JMPT, Applied Ergonomics, Human Factors, and she is an editorial board member of the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association. Dr. De Cavallo, it's an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you very much, Dean. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, Diana, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place? Uh, Yeah. For me, this occurred during my undergraduate degree at the University of Guelph. We actually had a full year dissection anatomy course in our third year of the human kinetics program. And I absolutely love that. It was one of the reasons I went there in the first place. Um, Together with that, and we had a phenomenal group of biomechanics researchers there. Um, So through the exposure to biomechanics, courses in clinical biomechanics, occupational ergonomics, prosthetic design, and with that background in human anatomy, I was really interested in chiropractic I remember looking at the chiropractic syllabus and getting excited about, you know, courses in orthopedics and radiology and diagnosis. And again, from my love of biomechanics, just the idea of being able to take care of people just by, you know, using your hands and forces that you might input um, paired with a sharp clinical mind. I I thought that was really exciting and powerful. Yeah, terrific. So uh, from Guelph, then you went on to, uh, to Canadian Memorial? Yes, that's correct, in Toronto. Yeah, great. So what was your experience like there? Just curious. 
Um, I, I loved it. it. Obviously, it was helpful being closer to my family, so I didn't have to go too far, um, which was really nice. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I loved the program. I loved how, um, um, yep, the clinical faculty that we got to interact with and, and the program in general. I was, especially radiology, that was kind of my, my favorite part of, of the program. Really enjoyed it. And, and the clinical rotations. I was downtown Toronto at the Sherburne Clinic and really enjoyed that. Felt that that put me in a good position for, for graduating. Terrific. So what made you decide that you wanted to go back to school and do a master's and then ultimately a PhD? <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, so that I, I always, I think I've always been interested in the idea of a PhD. You'll laugh, but I, I remember when I was really little, my dad would take me down to uh, Maple Leaf Gardens to go to hockey games and we'd always park at University of Toronto. He was uh, working on his master's when I was little. And I remember asking him, like, what do people do at university? And he'd explain all these degrees and research. And he told me what undergrad. And I'm like, well, that's good. But what comes after that? Oh, master's. Well, what comes after that? PhD, that's the highest? Okay. And it kind of always stuck. But I, uh, you know, that being in undergrad, like, I, I got some good exposure to research there. I actually almost started my master's right after undergrad. But I got into CMCC, so I went there. And um, it was really the last year of clinic. I was working on a learning objective for a patient case and reading about uh, this paper on the biomechanics of sitting. I loved it. I didn't understand the method section at all, but I, I loved it. And I actually contacted my undergraduate biomechanics prof, uh, Dr. Jack Callahan, who at this time was now a Canadian research chair in spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo. And just, you know, asked if I could come to the lab and catch up and see what everyone was doing. So I went to visit and it was awesome. All my old classmates from Guelph were there. So I got to catch up with them. And now that I had all this experience um, with my clinical education and, you know, had about half a year in clinic. So I had a lot of questions and um, I, seeing all the equipment, I had all these research questions that just started coming. And before I left, uh, Jack basically turned to me and said, so when are you coming to start your PhD? So it was kind of crazy to be offered such an amazing opportunity. I wasn't expecting it so close to, you know, right after graduating. Um, so it was kind of terrifying and exciting. But once that popped into my head, I kind of couldn't stop thinking about it. So uh, I knew it was the right thing to do. And I, I started right after um, the September, right after I had graduated from CMCC. That's terrific. Well, I can tell just from you talking how excited you get and you gotta, you gotta follow that. That's terrific. So did you, did you end up practicing for a while? Or are you still in practice? Yeah, so I, I have to uh, credit Dr. Kim Ross at CMCC. Uh, as I was, you know, still in clinic and, you know, going ahead and applying to do this to do graduate school, he pulled me aside and emphasized the importance of making sure I, I do practice along with my research. And, you know, if I, if I don't start that, uh, you know, I'll lose everything that I had already gained all my skills. So um, I started, like I said, I started graduate school right in 2006 and full time. Um, and then I was, I was just really lucky. I, I've always practiced part time. My first year, I um, actually practiced with uh, the group, the Health Point, Health, High Point Wellness Center in Mississauga, Ontario. And uh, through them, I actually practiced as an on-site chiropractor at the Globe and Mail in Toronto. So I held a full day of clinic on the Monday. And then would head to Waterloo that night and basically put in all that extra time that I missed um, for the rest of the week. So I'd go into school from like 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. from Tuesday to Friday. Uh, so that was a bit of a crazy year. And then the next year I was offered a position with uh, Dr. Marco Lose at the University of Guelph's Health and Performance Center, um, which was awesome because that was closer to school for me. And I was familiar with it, obviously, because of my undergrad. And that allowed me to get in um, still part-time hours, but part like on more than one day. So I could actually see patients like more than once during the week, which obviously is important for their care. And um, so that was, that was great. I was, it was flexible. I had great support. We team, team um, covered patients. So I didn't have to worry about my patients missing out on care. And, um, and I had full schedules when I went there. Um, we had some amazing cases uh, got and we published a few of those as a multidisciplinary team. We got the the physicians and some of the specialists involved in that, so it was great. I had a great mentor, a colleague to work with, and um, and it was great. I miss it actually. 
uh, moving here, so I got my first my first faculty appointment here at Memorial in uh, May 2015, um, and then had a baby. So I've been on a little bit of a break, um, but working on uh, another placement to again have that. It needs to be flexible to to be able to to fit in with the the lab and in the research schedule, but. Um, it's it always informed the work that I do and has been a strong driver in some of the, the questions I have. And I love being able to take what I've learned about or figured out in the lab and then being able to, you know, bring that right back to a patient where it's relevant to them. So that's um, something that's very important to me. Well, that's terrific. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot to talk about, and I, I know uh, our interests are uh, similar in that we're both interested in posture. Uh, with your specific interest in focusing on spine mechanics, especially in response to sustained flexion, I'd like to dive into some of the articles, get your thoughts about back pain and posture. And um, yeah, so there's Ooh, we got a lot of stuff. So let's just go ahead and get started. The first article that I want to talk about uh, has just come out here in October 2017, and that's from Ergonomics. And it's about the impact of office chair features on lumbar posture. I wonder if you could just guide us through that paper. Sure. And actually, I think you're, that's the one that was actually published in 2016. Oh, 2016. Okay. Yeah. So this is a study, it's actually the first study of my um, my PhD thesis. And um, the purpose of it was to look at office chair features uh, and how they directly impact spine posture. There's been a lot of um, papers to the, that had been done in the past looking you know, at lumbar supports or um, tilted seat pans, et cetera, but they had all been done using different chairs. Um, so not really a, a well-controlled design of studies. So, um, I was able to uh, find an industry partner who actually built me a chair to my specifications that was completely configurable to these different test conditions I wanted to test. And um, I used a population of uh, 28 participants. We used radiographs um, because there's, again, there's been a question when we talk about seat design about whether or not you're actually impacting uh, posture at the level of the vertebra, or if you're just, you know, squishing soft tissue, moving people around in the seat. And obviously we do have some very good external measures of posture that we can use, um, but they are estimates and, and they're, they're, they do underestimate what is actually happening at the level of the spine. So that's why we decided to go um, with that measure, more of a gold standard of what was happening. Um, so we tested the four conditions in a randomized presentation. Um, and we compared uh, between obviously chair condition and, and sex. And we found that um, sitting, as we had known from previous work, sitting, people are basically sitting at about 70% of their maximum capability of flexion. Uh, we didn't find any differences in lumbar flexion between chair features or the, or the control. Um, although we did see some differences in pelvic posture, um, specifically, um, in the seat pan tilt condition, which is basically rotating the seat pan forward about 10 degrees. Uh, and we did see a little bit of difference in um, male pelvic posture and some of their intervertebral joint angles. But essentially, the, the main conclusion was that there's not one feature that was statistically superior with re respect to minimizing that flexion in the spine. Um, and again, it was... Um, Again, you know, x-rays, it's, it's a point in time. So obviously this study was paired with a prolonged exposure study um, that these papers are in preparation um, for publication. So they'll be coming out um, over the next couple of years. Um, so yeah, the question was, okay, so they're not doing anything right now, but, you know, what actually is happening over a longer period of time was the next question to be asked. Got it. it looked like from this, that seat pan tilt. And I think lumbar support was almost uh, significantly different, but not quite. So it looked like it would be helpful. But the question is, how practical is that uh, in a longer scenario? Right. So it seemed to me, uh, people, it just kind of caught me off guard when I read through some of your papers that people sit in so much degree of flexion as a percentage of maximum, 70% in this particular study, what, uh, you know, and, and the other thing is that, and I think 
maybe we'll spend a little bit of time on this question is that uh, the question of flexion itself. It, it seems that much of the literature suggests that spine flexion can be harmful for the back. Why is that? Well, it's a good question. Um, and obviously the answer is not straightforward. It really depends on context. And I, I mean, I can take this from the point of view of, of spine biomechanics. Um, but I think it really comes down to tolerances. Can, can I, can I take it back a couple steps? Like, can I, can I ease into this? Absolutely. Yeah. So we talk about, like, so we know all biological materials have the ability to absorb loads and deform, right, within their tolerances before they start to break. So we know things can bend without necessarily a problem. And we know that there are changes with age and sex and pathology. Um, but essentially, you know, we have this ability to deform and move, and so it shouldn't be quite a problem. We talk about structures, right? Like we talk about a joint, obviously, is a, a bunch of different structures, and if we specifically talk about synovial joints, they've all been built and designed to move within this range of motion. So that all should be normal and healthy. Um, I think the problem with flexion is that, and with any range of motion basically, is that we're, we're good in the middle range, but it's when we get to the end ranges of motion that we, we start to have problems. And the reason that is, is just we weren't really kind of, the joints weren't really designed for for to be in those ranges for long periods of time. So we know, for example, in any synovial joint, you're restricted. Your joint range of motion is restricted on either end um, by the ligaments and the joint capsules and obviously by muscles turning on to stop it. And um, when we look at the spine, obviously when we go into flexion, we're stopped by the ligaments and the joint capsules of the facet joints and, and the disc in front. Um, and same thing on the other end, in extension, it's the bony contact of the facet joints that will stop us going into too much extension. So we have this neutral range right in the middle, which is uh, doesn't necessarily have to be right in the middle of point A and point B, but in mechanical terms, it's basically where there's zero stress. So if you relax your joint, a joint in your body, you're going to fall naturally into that range. But the closer we get to these end ranges, we see forces and stresses increasing in the tissues of the joint. And whenever we have higher forces, we, that means that there's higher energy involved. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes we can, you know, in a performance scenario, we can use that to our advantage. But in other times, um, that can be bad. And obviously, a chance, a higher chance of injury occurring because if that energy isn't controlled, it, you know, has to go somewhere. So whenever we talk about posture having the potential to create pain or injury, it's usually related to a posture that isn't neutral. So flexion, being outside the neutral zone, um, and then the greater the degree of flexion or the closer to the end range, we just have this greater chance that injury could occur. And um, so I've gone off topic. No, but, that's good. This is great. Yeah. So why is it harm? So I guess it's more that there's that there's the chance that it could be harmful. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. A degree of risk, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm just curious, uh, these people sitting, um, if, if someone was to try to sit up, let's say tall for lack of a better term, w would they still be in flexion and how much would they be? And is it even possible to achieve sitting in a neutral zone? Well, right. Yeah. So no, from all the work I've done, um, sitting is even when we try to increase the extension of the back with lumbar supports, um, for example, we're still very significantly away from an upright, an upright standing posture, which again is not neutral. It's on the other side, but, um, we've seen from external measures, I've seen sitting anywhere from 30 to 50, 70% of the range. It varies. You, you can definitely sit up straighter with less flexion, but there's always going to be a little bit of flexion uh, of the spine. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So what about, what about these, um, clinical conditions like, uh, lumbar spinal stenosis where flexion is actually one of the things that's highly encouraged? Hmm. Well, I think this is exactly where that it depends point comes into play because, um, you know, w there's so many factors that come into play when we talk about posture and movement 
and really it's it comes down to the that context of the clinical connection condition and the clinician being in tune with you know listening to their patients and determining the postures and the ranges that are either going to aggravate or relieve a condition so obviously my work has been in the normal healthy range healthy spine but definitely you know, if extension is painful and provoking symptoms, and we know, for example, in stenosis that flexion is a, is a pain-relieving uh, posture, then that needs to guide our treatment strategies and active care advice. So it it will, you know, it's, it's we can't just say there's, like, everyone, there, there definitely is, there is no one perfect posture. There's no one best sitting posture. And again, that's also going to change depending on what uh, the condition of the, of the person is. Got it. Got it. So uh, in your study, you used um, x-rays in this particular study. Uh, are there ways that um, patients or clinicians can just sort of, uh, I guess, either visually assess or with some inexpensive kind of tools, get an idea of what kind of flexion angle people are at? Hmm. Well, I think like what we do in, in the lab, essentially, when we normalize postures is we, we look at upright standing and extension uh, and maximum flexion. Now we do that both in the upright standing and seated position. And and it's obviously we're collecting data about what that is in each of those positions. But even just visually, if you look at the active range of motion of your patient, and again, being aware of lumbopelvic um, mobility and motion too, like looking at lumbar, lumbar as opposed to the hip flexion, you can get an idea of where that person's range is. And, and, and you can help coach them on that as well. They can feel their back and, and as they go through flexion and extension of the lumbar spine and get an idea that, hey, you can be sitting and you can have a rounded back um, or you could be sitting and, and have um, more of a gap back there, more of an extended back. And they can learn that. The problem is that often when we're sitting, it's for long periods of time and we get distracted and we're focusing on something else and obviously we're not in tune with our body. So that, that becomes the challenge. But I think all clinicians have the ability to, um, you know, address and, and discuss seated posture using, you know, fairly rudimentary tools. I don't even think you need tools at all to, to have a, a general idea of what would be better. Yeah, terrific. And, you know, it, it is a very important thing. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time sitting. So <laughs> the more we know, the better at this point. That's terrific. Well, one of the things, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think uh, your part of your thesis as you're going through school was looking at the effect of chiropractic care or lumbar spinal manipulation uh, on these uh, sitting effects of, of posture or just posture in general. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was... Um I, I kind of expanded how much work I was going to do. I really wanted to have some sort of a clinical relevant, uh, a, cr- a clinical point of, of my whole dissertation. So I was able to tag on um, this study. It was, a, it was very much a pilot study and, and an area that I'd like to explore in the future. Um, but essentially, this study was, uh, again, just... Uh, from my interest of, of practicing uh, with my patients, I had a lot of people I, I saw, both when I was at the, the Globe and Mail, obviously sitting, but also able to see a chiropractor in the middle of the day and have an adjustment. Uh, and then, you know, the patients I was treating at the university, you know, a lot of them sitting all day studying and, and having back pain. And the question was, well, what what can manipulation do either from, from a pain point of view, but also from... Um, you know, a waking up of the nervous system, would it make people sit differently? So that's where that question came from. Well, and, and I'd already seen, too, that we were able to induce um, clinically relevant levels of back pain in, in a healthy population with this exposure to um, an hour of, of sitting. So I used um, a, a design where uh, participants essentially were their own controls. They were exposed to this sitting and um, there was, after, I believe it was 40 minutes, there was, um, so there's three blocks of 40 minutes sitting, and then um, a control man- maneuver where we did a, um, a sham, so, so it wasn't a sham, but they, we set up for a manipulation but didn't thrust, so there was a stretch of the tissues, 
And then um, that was also randomized with the actual manipulation where there was a thrust to see what would happen. And essentially we saw, like, as we had hypothesized that discomfort and pain, perceived pain increased, and in some people increased um, quite significantly. And this intervention, um, both of them, both the control and the manipulation, so the stretch and the manipulation with thrust, um, basically reduced the amount of uh, perceived pain immediately after um, the, the intervention. But then that kind of jumped right back up with sitting. We didn't see a difference on seated posture. Um, I think there was a, a trend for a stronger response um, to pain for the thrust, but it didn't shake out as significant. Again, small small population. Um, but essentially, it, it kind of fell into place with that whole idea of any sort of movement um, would be helpful in response to, you know, just sitting quietly and prolonged. But also, you know, we see this obviously clinically, we know that spine manipulation can provide pain relief. So it was Nice to see that come out um, as well. Yeah, terrific. Thanks for going through that. I appreciate that. Now, we hear in the popular media a lot these days, sitting uh, likened to things like smoking, you know, the questions of, is sitting the new smoking? Is sitting killing us? Um, these sorts of things. What, what do you think about these statements? Well, I can say they were fantastic statements at the time I was wrapping up my dissertation because... <laughs> Nothing is better than having your your work have impact and catch people's attention with uh, the research area you're working in. But um, seriously, it was it was a very good example of media taking research and, and running with it. The statements actually originated from an infographic that was created by medicalbillingandcoding.org. And it was based on some epidemiology, some strong epidemiology studies. Um, Hamilton, Owen, Healy, the Kismer 6 studies. Um, but also a number of media studies, blog posts. Um, the epidemiology studies are, like I said, quite good. They found increased sitting time associated with uh, all-cause mortality. So that's basically just dying from anything. Uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and also that increased sitting times associated with reduced life expectancy in the U.S., now, obviously, there's lots of limitations to epidemiology studies, and we know that this type of work can't determine causation, but of course, the media stories made it sound like it could. Personally, well, I think there's enough evidence to show, like, and, and I think it's common sense to increase sedentary time. Sitting for a long time is not healthy. It doesn't feel good when you do it. Um, I don't think research, though, is at the point where we can compare it to something like smoking, uh, smoking and other occupational exposures, there's, there's a clearer dose-response relationship. The problem with sitting is that it's so prevalent and it's related to so many other factors about how someone lives their life that I don't think we'll get such a clear-cut relationship where, for example, we could compare sitting for half the day like smoking half a pack of cigarettes. So I, I think that, in a way, is a bit of a a bit of a stretch. But on the flip side, the fact that it was able to grab people's attention from just like a public health point of view um, was good, to, you know, to wake people up to say, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe I should be moving more. Maybe, you know, what can I do to become healthier? So I think it was a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Well, and this might be a good time to transition to the next article of yours, uh, one in which we can talk about some solutions possibly to these posture issues that we've just discussed now. And uh, the next paper was from Ergonomics and Design 2015, and it was about is standing the solution to sedentary office work? And there's lots of people these days trying to go from sitting to standing and, and back and forth throughout the day with, you know, new uh, pieces of, uh, or new devices that, you know, raise computer monitors, etc. So uh, I wonder if you could guide us through that paper. Mm -hmm. So this was, this was an invited paper that um, our, our group or my, my PhD supervisor, Dr. Jack Callahan and my colleagues were asked to comment on, and it was, it came at a nice time. Um, the lab at the time, um, there was a lot of seating work that had been done, um, my stuff included, as well as standing separately. So we, one of my colleagues, Dr. Uh, Nelson Wong, who's a DPT from Colorado, done fantastic work on prolonged standing. Um, actually, she her work was 
the the um, means for me to start looking at my pain data to look at maybe separating out people who are actually having some sort of pain when sitting and not because she was the first one to show that standing actually can induce transient back pain in healthy individuals in some people not everyone so that was the the idea there is you know and it, like I alluded to before when we talk about joint range of motion you know sitting and standing are kind of two other ends of the of, of the spectrum when it comes to range of motion so standing might not necessarily solve the problem especially if that's going to be pain provoking in in some people right because you're loading the the posterior elements, you're loading the joints, and, and that can irritate possessed joints, etc. So in this article, we talk about how, um, you know, it may not just be, you know, standing might not be the solution, or, you know, if, if someone stands, sitting might just not be the solution, but it might be maybe a combination of both. So this idea of, of rotating between sitting and standing um, could, again, so more movement, right, could maybe be better from health outcomes point of view, from reducing discomfort, increasing worker concentration performance. Um, so so that's what was discussed in the article. Um, again, it was more of a, um, a, just a summary of what had been done with just opening up more questions, which is what researchers like to do. We, um, we do get answers, but then we just get like 10 more questions. Yeah, well, that's awesome, though. <laughs> we love questions. <laughs> so, what what kinds of uh, recommendations did you come up with uh, in terms of, is there a, a ratio of sitting time to standing time that seems to be um, reasonable? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of the sit-to-stand work that's been done, so again, this is work that Dr. Callahan and Drs. Gallagher, Caracolis, Nelson Wong have looked at. So far, the ratio that seems to have promise is, is a three-to-one ratio between standing and sitting. But again, it, this is going to, it's going to depend. Um, we don't know, like I said before, if, if, if sitting and standing, if, you know, just because someone can sit without or with pain are they going to be able to stand without pain um so while this is where the promise looks like it's definitely not there's not enough evidence to say that that's should be for everyone and i would argue that it probably i don't know if we'll ever get to the point where there's going to be a one fits all solution for everyone but definitely a starting point uh, for clinicians to base their advice to patients um but it's definitely going to need to be combined with clinical experience and, you know, taking the history of the person and seeing what's going to work. It might be something you can start with uh, and then it, it might evolve from there. And, and keep in mind, if someone's been used to sitting for so long and then you get them to stand, even that's going to be tiring and that's going to, there's going to be some normal soreness that comes along with it, just like anyone who has to start a, a new workout program at the gym. So you kind of have to tease through all of that. Um, but that's right now. And like I said, I, I did quite a bit of work even because two of my studies looked at breaks, um, from sitting and I, and I went to the literature and I did my best to find any evidence of, you know, how long should we be sitting? When should breaks happen? And there really isn't a lot out there, uh, to base that kind of decision on. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause I was going to ask you about if there's some sort of desirable maximum time uh, that one would spend in either posture, but it doesn't sound like there is, uh, at least scientifically out there. No. And, and, and I mean, again, it's still kind of at an early point now, and there have, have been, you know, some work, there has been some work done on it since, but we're not at the point now where you could run a systematic review, for example, or a meta-analysis and try to come up with a definitive answer. I, when I went to my, cause I had, I had to design my studies. I had to pick when, when were my breaks going to happen. What I went to is looking at some of the basic research that looked at, um, you know, we start to see changes, for example, in flexibility. Uh, there was McGill and Brown, 1992, that showed, um, changes in ranges of motion after 20 minute exposure to flexion and looked at the recovery and the recovery actually took two times as long. Sometimes participants never actually got back to baseline. But again, that was being in extreme, like maximum end range flexion. 
and they saw this increasing flexibility. And there was other groups too, Sanchez and Zariega, they looked at what those flex postures, again, in about a 10 to 20 minute dose, uh, starts to change muscle reflexes in the back, again, in a max end range condition. So, and then, you know, we pair that with what we see with in the lab. We usually, if people are going to start to develop pain, it's around the 30, 40 minute mark. So it seemed like, you know, somewhere in the 20 minute, 30 minute, 40 minute region might be reasonable. And, um, and then that's what I based my, my decision on. But again, um, I think there's a lot of individual context that needs to come into play. Yeah, no, I, I like that, uh, discussion. I like those, uh, ranges of maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, just as a rough guideline, maybe clinicians can, can work with Mm -hmm. their patients, uh, to find out what seems to be optimum for them. And, you know, this brings me to another another question that I wanted to ask you about, and that is the variability of postures. Um, it seems like that is hugely important for posture. What, you know, um, I guess, how variable should we make our postures uh, as we sit and stand? Like uh, when people are going from sit to stand on these workstations and they're standing, is it okay to like, weight shift a bunch? Uh, should we be sitting on these balls that move around when we sit? What's your take on those kind of strategies? Yeah, so I, I definitely, one of the conclusions from my dissertation was that movement appears to be the key. So any posture, like I said, can create problems. There, I don't believe there is a perfect posture to be in, and I think it just comes down to the time we spend in any given posture. We're definitely designed to move. And, um, so any movement you can get in is, is going to be really important when it comes to variability. Like, yes, definitely. So we've, we've looked at interventions. Like I said, my, the standing, my standing colleagues have done a lot of work looking at some interventions. They've shown, um, relief with standing on sloped surfaces. Um, the bar rail, which started in bars actually has evidence behind it. It can increase some basically give some flexion to the back, which if you're in standing and in more extension, it can bring you a little bit more neutral. Um, so those can help. Uh, Dr. Nelson Wong showed a more active hip movement strategy. So basically um, contracting muscles around the hip um, was associated, was, was a predictor of those who wouldn't develop back pain in standing. Um, not sure if that's a chicken or egg thing, um, but definitely the more we pump our muscles and move around is obviously going to help. It's how anti-fatigue matting works. Uh, that creates a little bit of instability that requires frequent, subtle contractions of your leg muscles to balance. And again, we know that you get blood moving, that's going to reduce irritants and, and potentially reduce pain. My work has shown, you know, even increasing a bit of back extension can be helpful, um, with, with a lumbar support, for example, or tilting seat pants, again, it, again, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Like if you have constrained postures or if you, even if someone's standing for a long time and you're allowed them to move around a little bit, they still could develop pain. Same with sitting. Um, I think we need to get out of the posture altogether and move around. Exercise balls, interesting, kind of a personal beef. <laughs> I would always kind of cringe when a patient would ask me to write a letter of recommendations so they could get an exercise ball at work instead of a chair. Um, no knock on the exercise balls. I do like exercise balls, but uh, my colleagues, Dr. Uh, Diane Gregory and Dr. Dunk and Jack Callahan, they studied this in uh, 2006, published in Human Factors, and they looked at torso EMG, spine posture, and perceived pain in sitting on an exercise ball compared to a regular office chair. They found similar spine postures between the two. I think even the ball had more upright pelvic postures. But the significant finding in this study was um, the muscle activation, as we would expect. You know, we're seeing quite generally in sitting, if you sit in a regular chair, your muscles are pretty much quiet. And in an exercise ball, obviously, as we would want, you get this quite a high level of muscle activation, not only from the back, but your abdominals as well. And that could be a problem, and that was their conclusion, that it would be a concern for a prolonged exposure um, because you'd start to see fatigue, and that, again, could start to become a potential injury uh, situation, uh, maybe not in and of itself, but like I alluded to before, or maybe we haven't haven't talked about creep. 
we start to change the stiffness of what's happening in our body. We, we can change our motor control strategies potentially. And it, it could be, you know, if people are tired, their muscles are tired, they go to do something else, they could hurt themselves. And that's the link that I always found patient, like it's really hard for people to make that link. You know, the I bent down and I pen, picked up a pencil and I threw my back out. I don't understand. I did it this morning and it didn't hurt me. But, you know, we don't think about that six hours that we just spent sitting, which could change things. And and that could be the, da- the danger of the exercise ball, right? You fatigue your back and then um, it could be a problem. So I, you know, my advice always has been, you know, if someone wants a ball at the office to use periodically, awesome. You know, if it's going to get them moving, maybe do some exercises on their lunch, great. But there's no way I would recommend it for um, long periods or to, or to replace a chair. Well, that's great. I'm really glad I'm at. I asked that question, and uh, I also realized I'm gonna have to go to the bar after this. To uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not sitting on an exercise ball now, are you? No, <laughs> but I am standing, so that's why I was thinking about uh, getting to the bar later. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, okay, let's go on to uh, to another paper, and this is uh, a fascinating paper, and it is from Human Factors 2015. It was about Spine posture and discomfort during simulated driving uh, with selected lumbar support prominence. Uh, could you guide us through that one? Yeah, so this is um, a study that we were looking at a a new lumbar support. Um, and we, you know, we, you go to design these studies and there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. Um with, you know, what are you going to control? Are you going to force someone to do something? And with this one, we decided to let people pick um, how much lumbar support they thought they would want for a two-hour simulated driving scenario. Um, this was done in a laboratory-controlled um, setting with with an actual, um, the you know, steering wheel, pedals. Everything was configured to the dimensions of um, a vehicle. With a with a mo- a big screen, and they were actually driving on a uh, in a controlled um, program. And um, obviously, once the driving trial started, they couldn't change the level of support they had. So we let them pick. Like I said, there's five discrete levels, so no support to four centimeters. I had already shown in a previous uh, study that four centimeters of support could change the spine angles. So we knew that would actually impart a, a change at the back. Um, and we measured their posture, seat pressure, and discomfort responses right through the two hours of simulated driving. We didn't find any um, changes, obviously, of, of posture. I was wondering if, you know, things would kind of creep over time and people's postures would change over time or if there's a difference between men and women with their posture. Um, and there wasn't. We did notice it was very interesting about you know what did people prefer, and women preferred a lot larger amount of supports in their back than men, and um, it didn't really matter what they picked because everyone had increased pain through the two hours of driving, no matter how much support they chose. Um, the discomfort obviously was. Um, we looked at two uh, standardized. Um, questionnaire that looks at the how people perceive the comfort of an automobile seat to see you know what aspects of that lumbar support did they find uncomfortable and, and that was definitely they found found everything uncomfortable over time we asked retrospectively you know going back would they have picked something different you know would they have wanted even more support or less and everybody basically everyone said that if they could have changed their selection they would have um, and it looked like it was settling around a setting somewhere between two and three centimeters. But I think the big take home there was, you know, being able to change stuff like that while you're actually in a long scenario, getting again at that idea of being able to move um, would be helpful. And the other big thing from a design point of view is most of the lumbar supports that have been in vehicles, especially not the active ones, but just the ones that are kind of built into them. They're no bigger than two centimeters uh, in diameter. And so when we talk about, first of all, what people would prefer and also what we knew actually would in- help increase um, and improve spine posture by you know, getting away from that end range flexion. 
on, you know, most cars on the market at that time weren't, didn't even have the features to help with that. So, so that was, that was kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. A, a lot of uh, cool points come out of this particular study. One thing, I wonder if you can just help me um, visualize how you measured some of this stuff. So it, it looked like in this paper, again, pretty, pretty close to uh, full uh, flexion of their low back as they're sitting. How, how do you measure the, um, uh, the maximum range? Do you just have them bend forward as far as they can and then take a measurement? Yeah, so that's that's a very very good question. Um, we use, I mean, there's a bunch of different tools you can use in in car in sitting, especially if there's a backrest. Um, so and in car seats, we actually have gone to um, using accelerometers as inclinometers to measure spine posture. They give a very nice, very sensitive to movement. And um, the nice thing about them is you can calculate the angle between the relative angle between each sensor just the same way that you would off of an x-ray. So that's nice in that that's a, a similar measure of how we normally would look at spine angles. And as I said, they, they're, they're quite good and they're, they don't get in the way of a, a backrest. And they allow us to get time-varying measures of posture in long-seated conditions. So we actually get a continuous um, signal from them all the way through. When we look at ranges of motion, we we take some calibration postures at the start. So we'll take um, in, in very standardized instructions to the participants. We have them in upright standing. We get what that angle is. We do extension, maximum flexion. And we do our best to um, really guide them through bending at their spine, not their hips. And we you know visually are watching once they start really bending at the hips, we, we, you know, we'll stop that. But again, some people have an easier time moving than others. This is probably why in this study, why we saw, you know, some some measures exceeding 100%. Because obviously, if you don't actually have the true maximum, you could you can um, go over it depending on what condition you're in. Um, where was I going with that? Yes. Yeah, so now we also take a, a second measure with them sitting and in maximum flexion and we take whichever is bigger of the two. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only reason you can exceed and, and have such great uh, amounts of, of flexion. Um, obviously, if you get changes in flexibility after your baseline measures have been taken, that can obviously contribute to it. And I think in this case, probably both factors played a role and contributed to that. Yeah. And you had mentioned a term before that I just wanted to have you discuss for a minute, and that is the term creep. Yeah, it's it's not just a radio head song. Yeah. <laughs> and even though it's Halloween, it's I think it has a little different meaning. Yeah, so um it's something that I think, uh, you know, some people have a hard time grasping, so I'm going to try to explain it in, um, let me see if I can do a good job of explaining this. So we have, we know that, we know that our biological tissues are made up of cells and extracellular fluid. So we have this fluid component and that gives tissues uh, viscoelastic properties. That means that they essentially will respond differently to different loading rates. And because um, if you apply load on them, you know, you can squeeze water out and things can pull like taffy if you want to think of it like that. So two, two really important properties of, visco, of viscoelastic properties. Um, and again, this can occur in any material that has this heterogeneous component. So plastics, for example, will do something similar. Um, hydraulic pumps will do something similar. And obviously our biological tissues. So two of the properties are stress relaxation, which is where we get decreased stress under this constant strain or length, and creep. And creep is deformation under constant load. So if we think in terms of sitting and sitting in a flexed posture for a long period of time, I always explain this to patients as if you take um, one of those big white erasers and you bend it, that's like your body sitting. Um, so you, you're, the top part of your body, the head, arms, trunk, that's the load, and that's the load on your spine, and it doesn't change, and it's constant. And if that load's constantly applied to your, your spine, which is that bent eraser, 
everything on that back side of the racer, so the, the back part of your back, um, is going to start to stress to relieve the stress that are on the tissues. So again, in the, in the, in the spine, we're, we're talking the ligaments, the joint capsules, the muscles. And, um, and this is a problem because theoretically, theoretically, if you increase length in those structures, so for example, your ligaments, if they stretch out a little bit, it's going to take that much longer to activate mechanoreceptors, right? That normally get activated when we get to this end range motion that are going to help prevent, you know, excessive flexion, for example, or excessive motion in any which uh, direction. And um, like I said before, that's already been shown to occur in maximally flexed postures that we delay those. And if we, if we have that delay, there is a chance that we can start to alter some of the no normal motor control of the back. And definitely that can play a role in back injuries, uh, especially when there's been a prolonged exposure, exposure deflection. So for example, um, something that I think is, is really serious is, you know, anyone involved in manual material handling that has to sit for a while. So we think about, you know, EMT, our um, ambulance people and, and firefighters and anyone who's sitting and then all of a sudden they're in a stressful situation and they have to lift and do this, you know, very taxing and, and high performance maneuvers, you know, depending on the state of their back, they could be at an increased risk of, of hurting themselves. So I think it's something, like I said, you know, getting our head around cumulative exposure to these things that, you know, you can't see them, you can't touch them. Uh, it can be hard to grasp. Uh, it's very hard for people, but um, I think it's a big problem. So creep, creep isn't good. Yeah. Creep is not good. And creep sounds like it could explain some of the findings in the study where people are getting to, or maybe even exceeding their normal flexion amount uh, just because of that, you know, mechanical process that you're talking about. And the other thing that I find really fascinating is just the application to my own patients who come in and, you know, they, they're searching for explanations for, you know, why does my back hurt? Why, why might I have had this injury? I do it all the time. And so that's uh, it's good to think about these sorts of things and of course other things as well, but that that's an, an interesting mechanism. Uh, yeah, if, if I can jump in. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing. It's it, it just to stress, it's not only, there's not only potential for creep in the person, but what they're sitting on. And we forget about that too. So seat foam, seat foam will also deform over time. And there's factors like what the foam's composed of, age, heat, moisture, all those things can degrade foam quality over time. So, you know, we see this in couches and it's definitely in automobile seats where not only is there potential for change in um, the stiffness of the person, but also what they're sitting on. So we usually see this sinking into effect, uh, definitely in automobile seats, it definitely happens in couches where someone can start off in a fairly decent posture to start with, but over time, everything starts deforming and then you end up in this horrible posture by the end of it and you never even noticed. So again, I know most chiropractors probably warn their patients about couch sitting, um, but that's maybe part of the explanation why it's a problem. Yeah. Terrific. I love that. Uh, thanks for going through that. I've got a couple of other questions that I wanted to ask you before we wrap things up. Um, the first one is what are some important research issues you feel chiropractors need to address in upcoming years? And are there any particular, from your point of view, mechanical issues, spine mechanics, uh, types of questions that fit into that? Well, there are a ton of questions out there. You're asking the person that has all the questions. <laughs> so <many> questions. <laughs> Basically, I think we need research in, you know, basically every aspect that can affect patient care and chiropractic. Um, so I, I don't have any any specifics, but I, I just want to emphasize again, we're living in an evidence-based world and that's the way forward. So basically anything that we say we do or um, an explanation for something that, that is the way it is, we, we need to be researching that. And I think where spine mechanics fits in, like I said, there's a ton of unanswered questions you know, regarding who benefits from an intervention. And that can be in terms of both spinal manipulative therapy itself, but also even for ergonomic interventions, guidelines around sitting. 
I've seen a lot just in, in the fact that we can induce pain in some people, but not others. So there's definitely this heterogeneity out there. Um, and to date, you know, again, most of the studies, if they're done and that underlying separation hasn't been teased out, you know, you get a washout effect. So again, try and tease out who's best likely to respond. Um, we're going to then start seeing better results. So I think that's really important. Also dose response, um, issues again, again, with, with things like, you know, SMT, but again, you know, applying that to sitting, like how things are like, when should someone be taking a break? If they take a break, what should they be doing? How intense, how frequent, um, who do we, how do we know what a person needs? So there's so many, um, exciting questions out there to answer. And, um, I think, yeah, again, it, <laughs> I think it's all it's all really important. I can't think of many areas of research that wouldn't be needed to be addressed. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to, to reading your papers over the years to start addressing some of these important questions because you're right, they're hugely important. They affect every one of us. And, uh, and they can certainly help to guide clinicians, chiropractors to help their patients the best. That's terrific. Um, so... The last question is one I ask every single um, chiropractor slash researcher that comes on the podcast, and that is um, to if you could provide us with any advice to aspiring chiropractors or or students that may wish to become chiropractic scientists or researchers. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's incredibly vital uh, as a profession that we increase our research capacity. So I encourage anyone who has an interest to get involved in research. And there's so many ways um, to do that Um, from I know it's hard for practitioners, but, you know, even joining or starting a practice based research network, volunteering to help with research, um, I think are are great ways to just get exposed to what is out there and, and what's involved in research, too, which is important. Um, and, and, you know, interested in going to, to grad school, starting to look into it. Um, it's important to ask a lot of questions from as many people as possible, you know, pet potential supervisors. Um, I know I went and talked with, you know, people, students who are in, in the program already, students that have recently graduated, um, talking to anyone I could about everything. And, and it's important to go in eyes open with this is it's, it's, um, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. It's incredibly rewarding. Um, but again, like anything, more information the better. Finding out about funding supports, um, and you know, really, who's going to be able to be in your corner um, to help you you through it. I think it's it's fantastic for um, the idea that the clinician scientist um, idea. It's it's great because I, I mean I was so fortunate being a grad student and especially having practice, knowing like I could get frustrated in the lab, um, you know, not having that fast answer. It's, it, it takes time. Being able to go to the clinic and help someone out and, hey, that feels awesome. You're wonderful. That kind of encouragement was really helpful. But then at the same time, it, it, it kept that research fire alive for me and like, well, what about this question or what about that? And that would, again, you know, give you the the boost to get back in. So I think it's fantastic um, and we have a great, um, a great skill set too for, from, you know, already having that, the, clin- the, the clinical critical mind. So I, I think it's fantastic. So I would say if you're interested to definitely follow it up, ask questions and, and get involved. Great. I really like those tips. Uh, fantastic. And especially the, the part I don't think anybody's ever mentioned about asking other grad students, people who have graduated from the program. So, um, awesome advice. I really appreciate it. And, and I've had a fun time listening to everything that you've, uh, recommended here, uh, today. And this is, uh, this is good. I, I need to process some of the information and see how I can implement it into my own practice, but wow, good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. So thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it again. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening to Dr. Diana DeCarvalho on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. I hope you find these podcasts interesting, and I look forward to bringing you many more. Have a great day.